before we move too far into the afternoon tranquilizing topics. <laughs> Maybe you were experimenting with a little bit of the tranquilizing topics after lunch. Um, I, I just wanted to check and see if there's any outstanding, urgent, remaining questions from anything that was said this morning. Vipassana, Samadhi, and Samatha? Yeah. Samadhi is... Samadhi is concentration, huh? Generally concentration. Samatha is the meditation practices. Samatha meditation practices lead to uh, deep Samadhi, but they're single object meditation practices. Samatha. Like, like kindness or mantra or visualization or... Uh, a color, you know, a disc, color disc, just absorbing your mind in that color concept or whatever. Yeah. I guess the, the question that came up at, after we finished talking about how I was confused <laughs> was is it investigation that sort of brings together the mind and the object in a way that keeps you interested so that you don't sort of... Yeah. The comment is about, is it investigation that keeps you interested in the object in a way that you don't get absorbed in it? And if you look at the characteristic of investigation, of panya, you'll see that it penetrates the intrinsic nature of things. We could say it penetrates the intrinsic nature of the object. Now, what is the intrinsic nature of the object? Well, I'm going to... Here's a test. Here's, a, here's another three-dimensional instruction. Here's your hand. Take your finger and put your finger on the back of your hand. What is the nature, the intrinsic nature of that touch sensation? Huh? If you just, if you just, if you just gently just put it on there and touch it, you can feel there is a touch sensation, but it's a little hard to know what it is, isn't it? But now, if you take this finger and you just slightly just rub it around a little bit, oh, it's a lot clearer what the sensation is, isn't it? Isn't it? You can feel a lot more texture. Okay, so what is that? What is the quality of that sensation? Tickly. Tickling. Anything else? Huh? Rough. Rough. Rough, you said? Smooth. Hard. Hard. Solid. Cool. Cool. Pressure. Bumpy. Bumpy. Sinewy. Huh? Sinewy. Sinewy. Yeah. Okay. Let me, ju- let me just say that 60, 80% of those were concepts, and 30% of them were like actual direct experience. Which is which? Pressure is a real, that's it, real. Sinewy is concept. Huh? Cool is real. 
it's a real experience. Uh, hard, it's a real experience. Smooth, half and half. Vipassana would be to stay with the, the direct experience, to know that. And it's investigation, it's the clarity of the mind. You know, it's the mind that says, that's what it's noticing about that sensation. It's like, oh, okay, it's pressure, it's tickling, it's whatever it is. Huh? Like that. How do you keep that going? Well, it, if you're trying to be mindful moment to moment, and you're mindful of something, then what is it you're mindful of? Initially, it's going to be concept. Initially, you know, when you're trying to watch the rising and falling of the abdomen or the in-breath, the out-breath, the, the power of the mindfulness is not strong enough to notice the, the direct, intrinsic nature of those moments. It's just not. And it takes some collecting of the mind, some samadhi, some collecting of the mind for the mind to get powerful enough to see through the conceptual illusion of hand and finger. Because mostly we want to say, oh, it's finger, hand, you know, that's what it is. Huh? But that's, that's all concept. Or when you say... Uh, watching the rising and fall of the abdomen, we think, oh, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, the diaphragm is doing that, and the stomach is doing that, and the belly is doing that. But that's all concept. But what's the actual experience? Is it's hard to be right with the sensory experience of that. So it takes some collectedness of mind, some continuity of mindfulness, of concept, before the mind is powerful enough to see through the conceptual illusion to the actual tangible intrinsic nature of things. But that's why we're looking in this way. Just, I'm going to make a comment. Just at the break of lunch, someone came up to me and reminded me that uh, she practices in the uh, Tibetan tradition. And in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about samatha, and they talk about vipassana, and they talk about samadhi. And they use the words, the same words that we use, but actually, they have different meaning. And they have different experience behind the word, a different experiential understanding of what the word means. So my apologies to those of you who are coming from a Theravada or a Tibetan perspective. There's going to be some confusion, a little bit of difficulty translating. You know, so you have to be careful how you understand what I'm saying. Because it's not that one is right or one is wrong. It's that, well, as the teachings have gone to two different countries and they've been used and developed for centuries without talking to each other, they kept different, they've ended up with different meanings. So I have to be a little bit careful about that. So we always want to go back to when you say the word concentration, you say the word samadhi, you say the word vipassana, you always want to ask the teacher or the person you're talking to, what is the experience to which you're referring and get it cut it cut out all the jargon and all the, the flag words, all the Buddhist words to get to the actual experience. And then if you get right down to the the actual intrinsic nature of the experience, then you can talk uh, in the same language. I'm confused now because I understand this concept or the idea of concept conceptual, but if you're watching your breath in your belly and Feel it 
not really what I, what's happening. I just meant that this is not, not a concept. Is it? So the comment is, if he's observing the rising and falling of the abdomen, and he feels expansion and contraction, is that really what he's experiencing? That is how you understand what you're experiencing. Okay? But even then, we would say, that's concept. What, you, what, you're, what you're experiencing is the mode of the belly. It's expanding. It's contracting. So you're still in the realm of belly and expanding. Expanding is a kind of a, a, a term that refers to something over the period of time concept. But actual experience, moment to moment of that, let me point, let me, let me point to another way to understand this. You know the old Zen koan? Two monks walking down the road. They look up in the air, up in the side of them, and they see a flag blowing in the wind. And one monk says, "Wow, wind is really blowing today." And the other monk said, "No, no, the flag is really moving." And the Zen master he comes by and says, "Neither one of you are right." What does he say? Mind's moving. For you to understand that the flag is moving, the mind has to move. Really what you're seeing when you see the flag moving, you're seeing the mind move. So when you see expanding, you're seeing the mind move. So if the mind doesn't move, what do you see? Tightness, tautness, pressure, pulsing, vibrating, tingling. In each moment it's just a mm, 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 mm. But when you put them in a sequence, you get expanding. <coughs> That's concept. What about movement? Is that movement? Is that concept. Yeah. So it sounds like anxiety would be a concept. You're saying if you're observing and it's anxiety, that's more of a concept. The word anxiety is a concept. Words refer to words refer to concepts. But behind that concept, there can be a direct experience. What is the direct experience of anxiety? If we if we feel anxious. What is the direct experience of it? Vibrating, tightness, clenching, contracting, you know, pulsing, you know, and this kind of quivering uh, discomfort or something. Uh, unpleasantness, unpleasant mind. And then the quality of thoughts when you feel anxious is, you know, it's like there's a lot of fear. Fear is a direct experience. Huh? But the content of your fear, well, that's an idea. So when you look at, the ex when you're mindful of the experience of anxiety, yeah, the word experience is a, con is a concept. I mean, the word anxiety is a concept, but it refers to direct, momentary experience. Yeah. So could you help me um, with the third foundation of mindfulness? We're talking about mindfulness of mind. Um, so fear would be mindfulness of mind confusion. Uh, um, you might also experience fear, physically, it may a physical manifestation sometimes of fear, body, but then there's, so, I just had much more training in sort of things like sensations of the body, they yeah. and that, and when it gets to mindfulness of mind, 
it's not as clear to me about what is mindfulness of the object and what is the concept of it. Yeah. Uh, so the comment is about mindfulness of mind and when you're practicing like, for example, awareness of fear. So fear has arisen and there's awareness of it. Fear is a mental state. So you could say, oh, fear is being known. The state, the mental state of fear is being known by the mental state of awareness, right? So those are both mind. But then you said, sometimes fear manifests physically. Or we could say, fear conditions a certain matrix of sensations in the body. Sensations in the body are never a mental state. Now, they're conditioned by a mental state, or maybe conditioned by a mental state. So. Then we could turn our attention to the body and feel <coughs> tightness, quivering, contraction, heat, vibrating, pulsing. Hmm? Is being known. Fear, being known. Contraction, tightness, etc., being known. The being known, that's awareness. That's mindfulness of mind. When you're aware that the, of the knowing element of whatever is being known, something arises, and the, the knowing of it arises at the same time. This. If you recognize this, this is mindfulness of mind. If you recognize only this, this is mindfulness of objects. When you have an object-oriented mindfulness practice, then the object becomes, we say, more noticeable. And then we're going into the object and noticing the intrinsic nature of it. Right? The intrinsic nature of heat is just heat. You know what that is. The intrinsic nature of pulsing is just what that is. The intrinsic nature of contraction or tightness is just what that is. But if you go into the intrinsic nature of the knowing, then you can know that. Oh, what is the intrinsic nature of the awareness? Knowing, right? So you can, you can, it's not mental. I mean, it's not physical. It's mental. Um, and because it's mental, it's a lot subtler than sensations in the body. Sensations in the body are very gross, very noticeable. They occur in time and space. They're locatable. And so they're very tangible. They're the easiest thing to be aware of. Being aware of the mind is very subtle, very ephemeral, very thin, and very difficult to be aware of. Nevertheless, you just ask yourself. You hear the sound? You hear the background sound of the mind, of the room? The ambient sound of the room? How do you know that? Oh, because the mind is working. Right? The mind is working. The mind is knowing. The knowing sounds. Sounds being known. But if you if you focus on the sound like, okay, you can overlook the fact that it's being known. So don't get too absorbed in the object. Whether it's a sound or a sensation or a thought or an emotion. Instead, Really recognize, make a point of recognizing the knowing that's going on in all of these situations. So that's you. For me, um, disappointment. Fairly frequent. Disappointment. This is this is disappointment. This is disappointment. And I sort of know in the background that okay, so it's a long history, it's a long story. I don't want to go there. I want to say just this is disappointment. This is disappointment. Um, and now I'm wondering, am I truly? I'm sort of staying with kind of the 
case to be able to hold with knowing disappointment without being conceptual. I mean, I really can see that there's this sort of tendency to run with the story to know, okay, this is a frequent theme that comes up, but I would like to be really skillful and mindful of it. So using that as an example, let's talk about how to just know that. When you say, this is disappointment. This is disappointment. This is disappointment. Really, you're going into the sensory, mental and physical, the mental unpleasantness and the physical correlates or the thing conditioned by it, and saying, this is disappointment, this is disappointment, this is disappointment. But all the time you're doing that, this awareness over here of it not being recognized. Turn around. Say, oh, disappointment being known. Disappointment being known. Disappointment being known. Get clear on this. That would be mindfulness of mind. Clear as mud, huh? Is it like, could it be said like a shift from what is being known to what is knowing? If you say what is knowing, then you start asking yourself, what what is, maybe what is the thing that's knowing? Or what is the knowing itself? I, I think that's a, I think that's a, I think it's a confusing question. If you say what is being known, you're definitely going to be object-oriented. What is being known? Oh, pressure, tightness, tension, throbbing, sadness, happiness, frustration, disappointment. Right? But all the time, the reason you can say that, the reason you can identify what is being known, is because of awareness. Don't don't miss that. So. I sometimes, as I displayed this morning, sometimes suggest just changing the tone of voice a little bit instead of disappointment being known. Disappointment being known. Disappointment, disappointment being known. Disappointment being known. Being known. Like that. And it takes some it takes some practice just to shift. It's like it's like this. If I said to us all here, we're sitting in this room, what do you notice about the room? What do you notice in the room? Oh, I notice the people. I notice the colors and the cushions and the lights. I notice I notice the fans going. I notice the ambient sound. I notice it. And I say, what else? What else? What else? What else? If you keep looking at the object being known, you'll eventually cover them all. You'll eventually get them all, right? But what is it going to take to recognize the shape of the room? You have to let go of everything that you know, everything that you can focus on. All the objects that you can focus on, you have to kind of let go of them, kind of step back here and go, oh, now I see the shape of the room. That's also being known. But it's not something that you can take and aim at and kind of take in like you take in the shape of this thing. And yet, it is something that is known just as distinctly, once it's pointed out to you, it's known just as distinctly as this, isn't it? Shape of the room. 
You get it? Yeah, you get it. But until it's pointed out, you'll focus on the things in the room. Same in the mind. We focus on the things, the objects of the mind. We focus on the sensations, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions. Forgetting or not recognizing, oh, the mind is knowing all these things. Kind of how I... Yeah. So the comment is, in just being aware, open and aware of the whole range of things going on, sight, sound, sensation, the whole thing, she said, it feels like it's just weaving in and out of her in a way that she feels like she's just a piece of all of it that's going on, something like that, right? Yeah, and it's easier to be present with it because there's so much going on. Okay. Now, she said two things I want to point out for you. One is, there's all these things going on. And then her understanding is that she, herself, is a piece of it all. One is things that you observe directly, all these things. And two is how you understand them. Oh, I am part of all this. Right? Well, that's not so much an I, it's just being that... Like, I am all this. No, no. Um, this is all here and, and I'm, I, I don't know where to put the eye. I mean, there, it, it doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, but I, I just want to try to point out to, to you that some of what she's talking about are direct experiences, all these things. And some of what she's talking about is how she understands it. Oh, it's all one thing together. Okay, it's important to understand the difference between what is direct experience and what is your understanding of that experience. Because your understanding of experience is going to change depending on the quality of the awareness and the unfolding of wisdom. Yeah, so right now you understand it as, oh, it's all, you know, and I'm somewhere there. Don't know just where, but, right? And it's all a piece. I think that's what the word you said. It's all a piece. That's how you understand it. Okay. Keep practicing. Keep looking. Keep practicing. Keep looking. There'll be another understanding emerge. You know, as your collectedness of mind and depth of understanding increases. Yeah. But don't get attached to that view. What I'm pointing to is that we have experience, or we're aware of different experiences. We say we're aware of different objects in our experience. But how you understand them 
is when you start identifying and recognizing that will lead you to the path on the path of insight. The objects themselves, not important. How you understand it? Very important. Okay, should we move on and talk a little bit about tranquility, the tranquilizing factors of mind? Um, so I talked this morning about the three energizing, and a lot of the kind of questioning that we were doing this morning was investigation. We were talking about, well, what is this, and how do you do that? And then we would look and try to look into our own experience, and that's a form of investigation. We did a lot more thinking and conceptual investigation, but if you do it with awareness, it's, it's the uh, insightful investigation. Hmm? And then the, the kind of energy that doesn't collapse and the joy, the, the refreshing of the mind and body. Now we're going to have to balance all that energizing stuff with the tranquility, tranquilizing qualities of mind, three, which are calm, calm or tranquility itself, concentration or collectedness of mind, and equanimity, which is a non-reactivity of mind. Now, they're awfully close together, as you can tell. Calm, non-reactivity, and collectedness of mind, or we say stability of mind sometimes. They're all about, they're all clo close together, and sometimes it's difficult to tease them apart. What is the experience of calm? What is the experience of non-reactivity? What is the experience of, of uh, trend, uh, collectedness or stability of mind? So I'll talk about them all as a whole, but there are different flavors to, to them. Sometimes in the calmness, we can feel calm in the mind and the body, but not feel very, we can still feel a little bit reactive. We can be calm and really indulge in it. That's not equanimity. That's calm with attachment. Not, not totally neutral about that calmness. We like that calmness. And this is one of the seductions of, of samatha or concentration practices is the subjective experience of samadhi or samatha practice is we feel very calm. And it has a very calming effect on the mind and the body. And it's very difficult or it's very easy to get attached or identified with that calmness. We would say not enough equanimity at that point. Or not enough investigation into the calmness to prevent you from getting attached to it or enmeshed in it or absorbed in it. So the um, because the the calmness is the you can see the characteristic and the function is they quiet the disturbances. All the hindrances and anything that would disturb the mind, it quiets them down. It really just kind of soothes them. It kind of takes them out of the mind. It just kind of calms them down. And frankly, that's what we're looking for most of the time. You know, we come to practice because our life is stressed out. It's too fast. It's too chaotic. It's too, you know, we're just kind of like strung out on too much stuff. And, oh, to just calm down and to be more peaceful is well. That maybe we have we have we haven't recognized that that's what we're looking for. But when it arrives, 
we feel good about that. We like that. And we think, now my practice is really good. But, yeah, your practice is good in that you've calmed down, but as soon as you get identified with it or absorbed in it or attached to it, then bad. <laughs> because, you know, the, the defilement of attachment has arisen. Here's the calm, here's the awareness, here's the attachment. You're not seeing the calmness clearly. You're seeing it through the lens of attachment. All you can see is the good, the good part, the pleasant aspect of it. Okay? Then the, um, and you can see that the, it manifests as peacefulness and coolness, which is, hey, what's wrong with that? Feeling peaceful, feeling really chilled out, really not agitated about anything, just kind of at ease, at, at peace with everything that's going on. Sounds pretty good, huh? You're supposed to say no. <laughs> no, it is. It is pleasant. And that's that's the seduction of it. The concentration, because it's... We talk about it a lot. And let me just say that in this, in this template of the, three noble, of the um, seven factors, this concentration, we're talking about a mental factor, a capacity of the mind, an activity of the mind to collect the mind. There is, in the Buddha's uh, Eightfold Path, the three trainings of the Eightfold Path are sila, purification of speech and behavior by uh, uh, practicing the precepts or just being really careful not to cause harm by speaking or acting. And the second of the trainings is samadhi, which is right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, or skillful effort, skillful mindfulness, skillful concentration, which purifies the mind momentarily, but sometimes for an enduring period of time, purifies the mind of the hindrances or the defilements. But that is the calming effect of practice, of samatha practice. The third practice of the Noble Eightfold Path is the development of wisdom, which is the purification of understanding. It's not the purification of the mind. The mind is already pure in its momentary arising. It's free of the defilements. But even though it's free of the defilements, we can understand the experience wrongly. We can still have wrong view. Uh, so when we have wrong view, of course, the mind is not free or pure uh, in its understanding. So that's why the Buddha uh, basically said that uh, samatha or samadhi is not a strong enough practice for bringing about right view in the mind. It purifies the mind temporarily of the hindrances, but it doesn't purify the mind of wrong view. Oh. Okay, wrong view is a defilement, but it's not a hindrance. So we need to understand that samadhi purifies the mind of the hindrances. Wisdom purifies the mind of wrong view. Uh, understand. So what we're looking at here in the concentration or hekegata is the mental factor. We're not talking about the samadhi of the equal path. We're really talking about the 
the factor of mind that collects the mind, it's, it's aroused by the continuity of awareness, which does lead to samadhi. But the, because of the continuity of awareness, if the hindrances aren't allowed to arise now, or now, or now, or now, or now, or now, in a sequence of individual moments, then the mind collects. The mind, the power of the mind just uh, aggregates together and the mind becomes more powerful. It's like it becomes a magnifying lens so that what you see through that collected mind that is not hindered by any of the departments or any of the hindrances, what you see, you see a lot more detail. You see a lot more clearly. And that can be a conceptual object or it can be a Vipassana object. You know, the intrinsic nature of experience or it can be the idea of the experience. But in either case, the mind sees more and it is more, sees more detail and it is more stable in that it's not so shaken by, you know, your reaction to it your, or, or a uh, habitual reaction to uh, pleasant by being attached or unpleasant by being averse. So those reactions don't have a chance to take hold of the mind. The mind remains pure and the mind becomes more collected and we see things more clearly. This is the, um, the benefit, really, of samadhi. So Joanne this morning was saying when she walks slow, really walks slow, she feels she has clearer experience of concentration. What that means is that she feels more calm, more collected, less dispersed, and that the clarity of the experience is more distinct. Right? It's like it's more distinct. It's like, you know, when you lift your leg and you walk really slow and you've been uh, walking slowly and the mind is very collected, collected, then you can feel a whole sequence of sensations that you never could have noticed if the mind wasn't so collected. Like that. So, what happens, and what Joanne talked about but didn't mention, is that when you get that kind of clarity of perception, we get attached to it. We get attached to clarity. We want that clarity. We think that's it. That's really what I'm after. This is a well-known trap in, in Vipassana practice. Clarity of, of perception. Yeah, clarity is going to come. But if you think it's got to be this way in order to develop understanding, that's wrong understanding. Because what's happening there is the attachment is coming in to glom on to the clarity, isn't it? And then we say, this is it. This is, this is what I'm after. But that's wrong understanding. That's not what you're after. And clarity isn't, isn't understanding. You know, it's nice, it's pleasant, and that's what seduces us. Because our habitual condition, reaction to pleasant is attachment. Even if it's a good, pleasant result of good meditation. And that happens a lot with when, you, when your uh, momentum of your mindfulness is really 
continuous. And you, the mind becomes very stable. We say it has a lot of samadhi. There's a lot of tranquility. You see things really clearly. Well, you see everything really clearly. So that when you have, when you feel confident about your practice, you really feel confident. But when you feel clear about your practice, you really feel clear. But when you really see that things are impermanent, you really are. It's, you know, you get it. Things are really impermanent. Or when you feel calm in your practice, you really get it. Like, wow. This, I thought I knew calm before, but this is really calm. Right? Everything gets kind of amplified. And because of the clarity of the mind, the collectedness of the mind, everything is seen so clearly and it's understood in this way, all these experiences are the result of good practice. If you didn't practice well and establish a pretty strong continuity of awareness, you wouldn't have these experiences. They only come because of good practice. But when they come because of good practice, we attach to them with uh, attachment, or we uh, glom onto them with attachment. These kinds of experiences are called the corruptions of insight. Pseudo-nibbana. Pseudo-nibbana, because we get so calm, we think this is it. We get so blissed out, we think this is it. We get so clear, we think this is it. But we get so penetrating understanding of the impermanent or unsatisfactory or not-self nature or something, we think that's it, I got it. That now, I, now I really understand. You do, you do understand. But the attachment to that understanding, that's a hindrance. So this is a this is a really tricky place in in vipassana practice to distinguish samatha type experiences from understanding. These experiences are going to come. Can't help it. They'll they'll come if you're practicing vipassana. You'll get this kind of clarity, this kind of confidence, this kind of tranquility, this kind of understanding. But it becomes uh, so pleasant or such a good result, we say, of, of meditation practice that we'll attach to it and we'll think, now I got it, or now I've done it, now I'm special, now whatever. And all of those are uh, wrong view, pride, and craving. Bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is understanding a non-thinking experience? So, the clarity is a direct experience, isn't it? You, you, yes. you have some, and and the knowledge that it's clear is direct experience. But as soon as you start massaging that into, now I got it. Now it's going to be this way. Now I understand. This must be it. All that's thinking. Yeah. That, that's, that's identifying it with a sense of self or craving it or wrong view. I was having trouble with understanding clarity and knowledge. Clarity and knowledge. I'll give you an example. Okay. You ever have a foggy day up here? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So on a clear day like today, you look out the window, and even far away, you can see the shape of those trees on the, next to that building, way out there, you know, a block and a half, two blocks away. And you can see the shape of the tree, 
very clearly. And you know it very distinctly. Right? On a foggy day, you look out the window and you look at that place where the tree is supposed to be and you can't see very clearly. You, 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 can't, you can't tell one tree from another and you don't know the shape. You don't know if it's a tree or a telephone pole. Very unclear. But you know it very distinctly. You see the difference between clarity and knowledge? Clarity, not necessary. Knowledge, not necessary. But we like clarity. When it's clear, then we get attached to it. That sounds but in the direct experience of it on a clear day, it's very distinct. You can see the shape, the size, where the limbs come, and da da da. You distinguish this tree from that tree, and they're different than the telephone pole. Great. Okay, that's direct experience. But when you look out there and it's all foggy, uh, you kind of see some vertical upright things, and, and you don't know if it's kind of the telephone pole or the tree, right? Yeah. But you know that very clearly, very distinctly. You know that you, you can't see that. The object is diffuse or unclear, but the knowledge is clear. The knowledge of the unclarity of the object is very sharp. That's what you want to be looking for, the knowledge. Yeah. For every tree you cut down, you should plant ten. Our earth needs it. And if you don't have land to plant them on, I do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's go back to investigation. Investigation is the wisdom factor of the seven factors of enlightenment, right? So when you go back and you look at investigation, we see that penetrating the intrinsic nature of things is its characteristic. So in this experience, in this thing that we were talking about, in this experience of clearly discerning that the object is unclear, what intrinsic nature has been penetrated? Awareness. You clearly know the intrinsic nature of awareness. That is to know. And you know this exactly very distinctly, very discerningly, what you know, even though what you know is diffuse and foggy and indistinct. So we're not penetrating the object of the visible object, the tree. We don't know that's intrinsic nature, shape, color, size. What we do know is the intrinsic nature of awareness, which is to know. And that's what we've penetrated through this kind of investigation. Yeah. Where's the understanding? Huh? Go ahead. Is that the understanding is different thing? Where's, like, I get the clarity. Okay. Yeah. Do a lot of understanding. Is that, am I getting too scared? No, no. Okay, so what is the understanding that has arisen in this situation? We could say the object 
that's being known is not the tree. The object that's being known is awareness. Okay? And that's what you penetrate. You understand the intrinsic nature of awareness is to know. And that's what you've been, been that's what you understand of it. So when you get confused, say like I'm, I'm not clarity anymore. I'm totally talking about myself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed the comment. I don't know what it was. <laughs> side of it is the intrinsic nature of awareness clearly very 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 distinct discernment knowing or awareness is being known awareness being known not like wow now I really got it big difference awareness is being known just another that's what understanding comes in just awareness is being known oh okay awareness is being known if you make anything more of it, it'll either be conceit, craving, or wrong view. Those are the three proliferating conscious habits of mind. So I've, I've had a lot of troubles, but that's okay. Let me ask you are you clear about that? I wasn't maybe sure what you were saying, but you look out there and you see the trees, it's clear. There's clarity, but there's trees. Say you look out there on a foggy day, and you don't see fog. How come that's not clarity? Clarity is fog. Oh, you could say. Oh, sure. You could say. You could. You could say. Yeah, the clarity of the object then is the clarity of the fog. Don't know there's trees out necessarily. Sure. Yeah. No, no. You could say that. You could say that. But what I was pointing to is how to recognize. <coughs> excuse me. The understanding of awareness, or the clarity of awareness, even if the object that's being observed is diffuse or foggy. Because you could say, and somebody somebody had an example this morning, 
doing something, being aware of it. Then they got confused. I think it was you. Huh? Got confused. Confused. Okay. But while trying to look at all these things, did it do with awareness? Got confused. But didn't recognize the confusion. Because you could recognize that clearly. Right? I'm really confused. Oh, good. What's wrong with that? Just recognize, recognize confusion. If you try to go into the object of confusion, you'll really get spun out. But if you stay with the awareness of confusion, well, the awareness is not going anywhere. It's just kind of, it's there, steady, clear. Totally, totally. Yeah, I agree. That's right. So, definitely. Definitely. Sure. Yeah. But to the extent that we proliferate in, you know, aggrandizing ourselves with conceit, craving a wrong view, it's all karmic actions, kind of building up the momentum of that kind of identification or that kind of ownership, which is going to lead to suffering. So totally. If you know that you're confused, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that, if yeah. you're really clear then, about then that. Then you know it, but you don't become attached to it, so then you can, by recognizing it, then, then that can lead to some other knowing. Yeah. And, but you don't, no, you, don't, you don't come to the understanding that I'm confused. Yeah. You just know, oh, confusion is being known. You know, but it's being known clearly. you're very clear about that. <laughs> yeah. It's not even you're very clear about it. You're not very clear. I mean, you're confused. Which are you? Confused? <laughs> Don't get identified with either one. Just know confusion is being known clearly. <laughs> oh, are we? Uh, uh, no. Uh, well, I think you're, you've talking about this all day, but uh, can you say something about understanding? Yeah. Good. Uh, uh, yeah. So what is the understanding we're after? I mean, that's, that's you know, what it, okay, if we're practicing insight, vipassana, insight, what, what is the, un, what's the unfolding of understanding that we're, we're looking for, right? This is another whole day's topic. We could give a whole, I could give a whole day, or more, a week, on, okay, <laughs> yeah, right, maybe this is next year's topic, on uh, what's called the progress, progressive insight, progressive insight, which is a, a delineation of the various knowledges to be gained from a present moment experience. And the first, the first knowledge is something is being known. Something is being known. Most of the time we, we move through life, we're not aware of that. We're just totally enmeshed in what's going on. We're not aware that it's just something being known. It's I'm doing this. I'm feeling that. It's not just something being known. So that even that knowledge is hard to extract from the general, everyday, diluted way of living our life. So that's the first. I'm just going to give you a hint of the next couple. Something is being known. Something is being known. When you get really good at it, it's like that's all that's happening, ever. 
in your life. It's just something being known, something being known, something being known. You know, pleasant, unpleasant, physical, mental, subtle, gross, familiar, novel. It's just something is being known, something is being known. There's nothing else happening here. Okay, that's a pretty sobering understanding. But the next, the next understanding to emerge from that is the something that's being known is arising due to causes and conditions. It's not accidental. It's not because you choose it. It's, not that. it's like there's so many causes and conditions giving rise to this that... Okay, so you begin to understand. Oh, get it. Pain, pain in the knee is being known. The pain in the knee gives rise to aversion in the mind is being known. Where did that aversion come from? Conditioned by that pain. Okay, aversion in the mind, aversion being known. Aversion, disliking, gives rise to the intention to move, shift the posture, because we know we'll get some relief. So the aversion is being known. Intention is being known. Moving the body is being known. The feeling of relief is being known. Happiness is being known. I'm so good is being known. <laughs> we think it's me that experienced the pain, decided to move, moved, and felt better. It's not, there's no you there. It's just causes and conditions. This moment being the cause for the arising of the next moment, which is just another moment being known. Oh. This is really yuck. <laughs> but when you really understand, oh, that's all that's happening, it is so freeing. It is so freeing. It's like, whatever happens, not your fault. <laughs> not your fault, you know. Whether you're happy or unhappy, whether you like it or not, whether it's pain or pleasant, it don't matter. And there's other knowledges beyond that. Lots. Because those two knowledges aren't even Vipassana yet. But the next one is to be Vipassana. Yeah. And is this an oversimplification? When you move from awareness of objects yeah. to awareness of awareness, yeah. um, then one thing seems to be one thing that's changing there is when you're aware of the object, by definition, you're separate from the object. <coughs> And so, your awareness, I don't know, I'm not sure, are we separate then? Initially, I mean, did you hear the question, when there's awareness of object, it feels like I'm separate from the object, right? And then when there's awareness of awareness, uh... It must be, I am aware, right? I think it doesn't have to be. <laughs> Initially, when we do the ob uh, awareness of object, we do get identified with the awareness itself. But later in practice, with more understanding, more deeper insight, more collectedness of mind and deeper insight, we realize that I'm not the one who's aware. I'm not aware. 
There's no I in there. Awareness happens just like sounds in the room, causes and conditions that we don't control. Awareness also, same. Causes and conditions that we can't control. If we could, we'd say, mind, be aware. It would happen. You can't do that, can you? You can't say, mind, be aware, and have it happen. Why? Because you're not awareness. Awareness is not yours to command. But it can be trained. Through training, we can train the mind to be aware. But it's not you being aware. It's the muscle of, the mental muscle of awareness being developed and doing its work. It's just doing its nature, which is knowing experience. Don't want to lose you now. <laughs> okay. How condition you said a sense of relief and How does that imply? Did you say that? Yeah, no. When you move the body, you know, your body's just aching and paining, the tension arises, you move your body, you shift your body. And there's a feeling of relief. Yeah. yeah. And so, but what I'm wondering with the cosmic condition, what are we responsible for with the eightfold path? Because we have all the training. How, how do we fit that into a cause? Sure. As I mentioned this morning, the mind, you know, Utejaniya says, the mind is not yours. What happens to the mind in the mind? You know, if we could control it, we, we, we'd definitely direct a different show, right? But, you know, stuff happens. Okay. In the mind, too. But once it arises in the mind, then there is a moment, there is, there is some choice there how to deal with it. If there's awareness, somebody asked a question last night, if there is awareness, we can choose with wisdom and compassion how to respond to it. If there's no awareness and something arises in the mind, then the habitual reactivity of attachment to pleasant, aversion to unpleasant, will take over. So we could say, habit rules the mind unless there's awareness, in which case there is some uh, capacity for wisdom to enter the picture and to choose a, an appropriate response, a wise, compassionate response. Okay. Other? Yeah. So is that moving in the direction of the yeah, now when, when we talk about liberation and freedom, what are we talking about? Liberation from what? Freedom from what? Attachment. That's samadhi. Liberation from attachment is samadhi. Liberation from? Huh? Ego. Ego is a concept. I don't know how to be liberated from the ego. What was that? Samsara. What is samsara? It's a word. We all know what it means, but what is it experientially? Cycle of birth and death. Greed, hatred, and justice. 
Freedom from the eye that identifies with things. Isn't that where you keep Some, That's one way of understanding. Yeah. Actually, liberation is liberation from wrongly understanding the nature of reality. When we talk about the liberation of the Buddha's noble eightfold path, it's understanding things correctly. It's freedom from delusion, freedom from confusion, freedom from wrongly understanding what's going on. So as we go through the uh, progression of knowledge and we gain a more refined understanding of what's happening, you know, in time we'd have no more illusions. We really see, oh, this is the way it is. At that point, then we can say we're at least momentarily liberated and when it has a transformative effect in the mind, then we can say we're permanently freed from that illusion and eventually all illusions. How can you recognize equanimity when it happens? That's the question. Equanimity is non-reactivity, right? So when pleasant experience arises, there is a conditioned affective response of aversion. And we just let if it's if it's oh if it's a pleasant then it's attachment if it's unpleasant it's aversion and that uh, immediate you know impulse to have that affective emotional type of reaction to it if you catch that you don't have to act it out you don't have to think it out you don't have to do anything but you can arrest it this is a kind of uh, <coughs> affective equanimity but this is not insight yet this is just Kind of like navigating life with more skill, you know, because pleasant and unpleasant are happening to us all the time. And if we can just get a handle on just not being so reactive, being a little bit calmer, a little bit less impulsive, a little more tolerant, a little less, uh, you know, demanding, a little less feeling victimized or entitled. I like that. I mean, victimized or entitled. Do you ever think about how often we're either on, we're on that spectrum? Oh, man, it's really a lot. But not going to those extremes and just saying, this is the way it is. Then we get a handle on affective equanimity. But in the development of insight, we actually get into what I call both cognitive equanimity and perceptual equanimity, where the functioning of the mind is very balanced. It's not reactive one way or the other. And we can see that in our practice. You know, when we're practicing, and we sit down, for example, we sit down to pay attention for 45 minutes. So what's the instruction? The instruction is, relax the body. We know how to do that. Relax the mind. How do you do that? How do you relax the mind? Because if the mind isn't relaxed, it'll be tilted. You know, it'll be not equanimous, even to begin with. Even the, if you apply the effort or the energy of your practice in a non-equanimous way, how can you ever expect to find equanimity? And so, if there's any agenda in the mind that's pushing the effort or the energy of your 
wanting to be mindful, it's tilt, tilted already. Right? So when we when we practice with this kind of attitude of mind, watch. <laughs> Did you ever practice like that? Yeah, for about thirty years. <laughs> What'd you get? Headache. <laughs> Not necessary. It'll get you something, though. It'll get you something. Not just a headache. You get very collected in a samadhi way. But the samadhi that you get from that kind of focusing intently in a very quiet environment, going very slow, the samadhi you get is very brittle. And as soon as the silence is broken, or somebody moves fast, or the bell rings, or somebody slams the door, <clears throat> that samadhi is gone. Fractured, shattered. And there's no sense of samadhi. But on the other hand, if you're relaxed, and you're aware, and you're just aware. You're aware of this, you're aware of that, you're aware of this. You're not, you're not kind of scrunching up, but you're watching the that the effort is also equanimous, that you're practicing with a very balanced equanimity in your effort. Then, the door slams, you know, somebody sneezes, you know, the power goes out, loud band starts playing across the street. So what? You're just aware, you're, you're hanging out with the awareness rather than the object. If you're from the object, when the band starts up across the street, that's why it's so good to practice in Burma. I'll tell you why. Because it is an absolute cacophonous madhouse. It's like, it is not... You put you in the Burma, It is not quiet. There's loudspeakers blaring Burmese karaoke day in, day out. Monks and nuns chanting away like all hours of the night and day. People in the monastery talking. Even in the meditation hall. There's a... You know, they come in every, every couple of days with a big bundle of flowers. They're at the sink in the back of the meditation hall, talking, making up the bouquets and setting them on the Buddha. And some people are talking while you're doing your sitting. It's like, if you're focusing on stillness and silence and minutia, you suffer. But if you just focus on awareness or noticing the awareness of sounds and sights and reactions and whatnot, awareness, it doesn't matter whether it's loud or not. If it's loud or quiet, it doesn't matter. What you're aware of is the awareness. You're not dependent on it being quiet or still or anything else. Because awareness can be of anything. So if you tune into that, you can be very equanimous. The equanimity that comes from uh, recognizing awareness is very flexible, very pliable, very uh, adaptable to any situation. Loud noises happen, people talking, somebody takes your seat, you know, they ring the bell at the wrong time. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like, because the equanimity is in the awareness rather than the object. So if one were to have absolutely no agenda in a sense other than bare awareness and never 
So if someone, say it again, could just be, the only agenda in the practice is to be present moment to moment and no reaction to anything that arises. No judgment of anything that arises. I want to I talk about this word judgment because judgment is possible when the mind discerns a distinction and prefers one of those to the other. Okay? Now, you know, you go in the grocery store and you're looking for some bananas and you see one bundle of bananas here and you see another bundle of bananas there. And you look at them and your mind knows instantly which one it prefers. Why? Well, because it can look at those two and say, <laughs> that one's got more black spots, that one's got less. This one's green, that one's right. That's the one I want. You don't, even, you don't think that. It's just instant noticing. Well, we need that capacity for very refined discernment in everything we do in life in order to make wise decisions. If we didn't have that discerning capacity, we'd marry the wrong person. We'd get the wrong job. We'd buy the wrong car. We'd, we'd do all kinds of things. We wouldn't be able to discern one thing over another. We'd just say, ah, six to one, half to the other. What's the difference? And maybe we'd be better off for it. <laughs> but, but because we have this discerning ability, this discerning capacity of the mind. You know, we know. We know which one we prefer. Judgment is attaching to the preference. <laughs> Got it. Ready? That's why it's so interesting. You know, when you go to a retreat, it is on retreat it's really good. Or you can do it in any restaurant. Watch people eat. Watch people eat. You don't have to think about it. It'll, it, you'll see. Some people, it's just disgusting. Other people, it's like you just you just know things about their mind, right? But if you get attached to your perception, your discernment, oh, you'll really suffer. You'll think it's that person. It's blah 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 blah. blah. You know, that's your attachment or your aversion. But the ability to discern between two behaviors, two bananas, two states of mind, two meditative experiences. You can't erase it from the mind. The mind is going to make those distinctions. Very subtle distinctions, perception. We can see the slightest little difference. And there'll be a preference. Equanimity is not getting caught in that preference. It's not denying the preference. You know what I mean? It's not saying preference doesn't happen. That's denial. It's recognizing the preference, but not getting, not acting on it. Were you going to say something? I thought I oh, saw your hand up. When you were talking about liberation from, from what, and you said liberation from delusion, someone else had thrown out suffering, and you didn't catch on to that. You know, I mean, you said liberation from delusion, and I was wondering if you saw a distinction between liber uh, liberation from delusion and suffering. Okay, so the, the comment is about liberation, liberation from what, and... Uh, I guess I agreed with liberation from delusion. Somebody said suffering, freedom from suffering. 
and if I didn't pick up on that or I didn't comment on that, I want to distinguish. We use the word suffering in English usually to refer to dukkha, right? In the Buddhist language, dukkha. And even though the Buddha was free of delusion, he was not free from the experience of dukkha because he still had a body and he still felt headaches and backaches and got sick and died, which are all dukkha, suffering. So the English word suffering is a little bit not, not quite accurate. Huh? So we could say one can be free of delusion and still experience dukkha because body. But those who are fully enlightened like the Buddha or other arahants, they, they know that there's an end to the dukkha because when they pass away into Parinibbana, they, they no longer have that. So, yes, it's true, liberation from dukkha, but not immediately because we still have the body. So, curious about, one of my things is, going back to the 13th, back to the bananas. Go back to what? I want to go back to the bananas. Bananas. <laughs> so, you got the two bananas and... Um, you look at them in the instant when you start um, discerning, you know, this one has less black spots and it's, you know, I tend to like organic and all that. So I'm going to go with this guy. Um, but then, what keeps you from proliferating on that and getting attached? Like, because my, without getting tight about it, because I tend to go like, that's a great banana. I'm a great guy, picking that great man. This man is me. I mean, none of that. And at what point do you stop that without it getting kind of, you know, tight? You know, right? Well, I, I, I wouldn't stop it. I, I wouldn't stop that. I would be aware of it and just say, oh, banana. I picked the right banana. Aren't I great? Oh, here I am, you know, indulging in pride or, you know, self-adoration or whatever. Oh, what's that feel like? Oh, let's investigate that. Let's not make it wrong, but let's really learn about the nature of, and we'll see that, oh, I made this decision, and this decision conditioned a feeling of pride or self-adoration. Oh, well, let's learn about that. What's the cause and condition of self-adoration? What's the nature of self-adoration? How long does it last? What kind of, what does it do to your thoughts? What does it do to the nature of your thoughts about your partner? What, what, what does it do to your thoughts about the future? No. These aren't questions that you have to ask yourself, but by paying attention to the nature of self-adoration, you'll see how it colors everything else in your mind. Not that you're acting out that self-adoration, but you're seeing its conditioning effect in the mind. As long as you're still kind of... <clears throat> Awareness, aware of it. Well, being aware and kind of going through the process is yeah. not really stuck. Yeah. Utejaniya, Saito Utejaniya, who I practice with now, suffers, as a layman, suffered from severe depression. Hmm? Three times. First two times, he just muscled his way through it, kept himself busy, kind of overcame it. It passed after some months. The third time, it was so severe, he was just totally incapacitated. And he was just caught in the content 
of his depressed thoughts. So, he practiced. He said, I can't do anything about it. All I can do is be aware of it. So, he just turned his attention to the nature of depression itself, the nature of depressed thoughts, with the understanding that these thoughts arise due to causes and conditions. These thoughts are not me, they're not mine. They arise independent of a self, but they arise due to causes and conditions. And in that kind of investigation, that kind of curiosity, he could watch the thoughts that arose in his mind without feeling like they're my thoughts. So we can do the same thing with pride. The thought arises in the mind. Hey, this clarity is really good. Aren't I something? You just watch that thought. Oh, without, without owning it, without saying, oh, that's me. It's my thought. I'm this way. And you watch it and say, this thought has arisen due to causes and conditions. What are the causes and conditions that gave rise to that thought? You know, if, you, if you're paying close attention, moment to moment to moment, you'll see. And you'll see how that thought leaves the mind. You're paying attention, you're paying attention, you're paying attention, gone. Then you really have some understanding. And you're not caught in that pride or any other, or depression or anything else that arises. Anxiety, catastrophic thinking. Well, that might be an example of a cause and condition for Kevin to celebrate himself the picking of a man. What might be the cause and condition for him to. Yeah, like you said, okay, so start looking at this. Okay, so this is, you know, um, what I, what, I'll give you an example. You go into the store, it's late, late Saturday afternoon, the store's not going to be open Sunday, you're going in for some bananas for your kids, and you see two bunches of bananas. One is green and hard as rocks, and the other is perfectly ripe with just a few black spots, and they're just right, they're going to be wonderful tomorrow, and there's another person running for the bananas too. <laughs> It's easy to see. If you get the right ones first, you feel proud. You feel like somehow you did it. You're good. You're better. You're some, something. It's inevitable, isn't it? It is. It's inevitable. You'll have that feeling. Unless you have awareness and you, you, know, you say, well, you know, the other person wants some bananas too, and you feel compassion, and you realize, oh, they got two kids in the car. Oh, okay. So then you reach the bananas, you know, and there's eight of them, so you break them in two and you give them half the ripe ones and half the green ones. Then you feel good about yourself, but not in a prideful way, but in a way that's compassion, that's an expression uh, of compassion and wisdom. Rather than, I win. <laughs> right? You see the difference? Yeah. The big difference between, I got there first, I won, yeah. <laughs> to, oh, okay, you know, we're all in this boat together. You want some bananas for the kids on the weekend, and so do I. Okay, how can we do this? Okay, understanding. Everybody wins. It's not like proud. Yeah, you could say, I got a lot of wisdom. I really, you know, compassionate. 
you know, but somehow when you actually express wisdom and compassion, it doesn't come with the identification with it. But if it's a defiled state of mind, it comes with a lot of identification with it, like aversion or attachment. So this, this may sound trivial, but I think for enough Dharma friends here that the place that kind of comes out, perhaps, is um, our um, superiority of taste. Superiority of? Taste, like discerning about movies, discerning about... Opinions. That place where one's trying to live skillfully, but there's this also that um, someone at the workplace then starts talking about reality TV or something. There's just that. Except at the gym, or I can't avoid it. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, I mean, it's it's how we work with that more skillfully, which seems to be seems more justified. You know, if they're choosing the more skillful path. Um, I'm really not wanting to be a jerk. Huh? I'm not, really not wanting to be sort of a spiritual jerk. But there's that. But we do. We get we get proud of our spiritual uh, practices. We get proud of our spiritual accomplishments. You know, we're not immune from pride. Pride is one of the last of the defilements to go. You know, long after aversion. Pride lasts a long time. So, a couple things. One is, uh, you know, the Buddha was the Buddha was asked, what well, you know, in a long series of questions, you know, why is there war? Basically, it comes down to well, people, uh, ordinary people. Uh, argue over sensual desires. You know, why is there a war in the Middle East? People's, you know, warring over their attachment to sensual desires. Really, if you look at it, if you if you analyze it that way, you'll see. But then, among us spiritual seekers, why is there disagreement? The Buddha was asked. You know what the answer is? Huh? Views and opinions. My practice is more effective than yours. My teacher is a better teacher than yours. You know, I understand that the uh, Eightfold Path is practiced this way. You know, not your way. And those views and opinions, similar to what you're saying, it's like, you know what, it's better to be a vegetarian than a meat eater. Because, you know, the effect on the economy and the world, environment, and everything else. Everybody knows, you know, it's those cows that are polluting the earth. Right? If you know that and you believe that and you, you exalt yourself over those who eat meat, well, that's spiritual pride, isn't it? Spiritual pride. That's a big hindrance. A big problem. And then in terms of, um, say, social justice practice, though. Social justice practice. Um, you know, if we were not to consume this much meat, there would be these sorts of we can know that. We can know that. What's important is not to take pride in it, not to exalt yourself over 
someone else. So I understand, oh, this for me is the path of wisdom. That for me would be the path of confusion, delusion, desire, whatever. You know, But not to kind of exalt yourself over the other person because what self is there? You know, as much as you exalt yourself, you're reifying a sense of self that is just that much harder to disassemble. our wisdom in the world through behaviors, and I think we can express it verbally. What do you think I'm doing up here? (laughs) (laughs) And I have to think it's the right view. (laughs) But I'm not willing to go to the mat about it. It's not worth it. You know, as, uh, did I tell this story last night? I can't remember. A couple of friends of mine from Seattle several years ago, we're going to the three-month course in Massachusetts, which started in mid-September, which is late summer, early fall, and it ends mid-December, which is late fall, early winter. And so they were having a discussion, which among couples is often an argument, about, (laughs) about what to take, what kind of clothes to take. And they had a heck of an argument. You know, they each packed their own suitcase, of course, went to the retreat, but at the retreat, the argument and the discomfort from the argument came up in her mind, and she was just reliving the argument and how painful it was to have this argument with her husband before they came on the retreat, and it was bugging her, and every time she came in for for report, she'd say, oh, I'm so angry, I'm so pissed off, I wish I could put it aside, I don't want One day she came in and she said, oh. I had an insight. I realized I can either be right or I can be free. That's the choice we have. You can insist on being right and suffer, or you can just be free and not suffer. You see the connection? You know, we were all here listening to or discussing from a Buddhist perspective the nature of reality and the mind and suffering and non-suffering. And so we all pay lip service at least to the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering. But when you get in an argument with your boss, your neighbor, your partner, or your teacher, and you get into an argument and you're suffering, Do you take the path of non-suffering? 
Or do you insist on being right? I mean, we often choose the path of suffering. I will not let go of my opinion. You know, I'm right, and I know I'm right, and I'm not ever going to believe otherwise. There. And I'm willing to suffer for that. we got some work to do. Because all it takes is letting go of insisting on being right. Stop, if you stop insisting on being right, you still know for yourself what is, you know, what is your preference. Okay, but can you let go of the insisting on being right and just say, okay, so what? Can you approach that whole discussion with more equanimity? Because if you do, then you can stop suffering. And making suffering the top priority, the Buddha made suffering and not suffering the top priority. A priority. But we don't. We often choose to suffer. We choose the path of more suffering. I'll give you an example. Who was it? Telling somebody was telling me. Um, just, I think it was last night. I think somewhere out in Montana. Is it this weekend? Maybe it's on Memorial Day. Can't remember. There's two things happening in uh, one area. Glenbeck Rally and the band Further is playing. Further is the Grateful Dead. The, well, the remnants of the Grateful Dead. Which do you prefer? <laughs> You're in town and there's Glenbeck Rally over here and there's Further Concert over here. Do you have a preference? Are you suffering with your preference? We have that choice a lot, you know, how to, what, what we what we want to listen to, and what, what kind of news we listen to, or, you know, whose side we're on, or, can you listen to politics, can you listen to the, the chatter out of Washington and not feel upset? Can anybody? No. <coughs> Very difficult, isn't it? Why? Oh, we're attached to our opinions. We're attached to our opinions. Our views and opinions. Oh, you mean there isn't an actual right way, and there are some of those people are wrong? You know, the ones that I don't agree with. If you want to suffer, you can. You can be attached to those opinions. If you want to be free, then you have to let go of your attachment. You can still have your opinion, but you have to let go of your attachment. It's more than just having an opinion, but rather you're seeing no harm being done. Real harm being done? Uh, oh, for sure. Murders or people having their livelihoods taken away or things of like that. Totally, to- totally. How do you then... And the Democrats would say the same go. thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. I mean, we do, we do see suffering. And we do see that, you know, some behaviors really is, appears to be uncompassionate. And, you know, some people think that, uh, you know, to do this is uncompassionate and to do the other is uncompassionate. I'll tell you, it's a, it's a attachment, it's views and opinions. Now, we can say, yeah, people are actually getting hurt. People are losing their jobs, people are being sent to war, 
that's true. I, I agree. I agree. But, you know, how you vote is important. I agree. But suffering is a choice. We can choose to suffer or not. Sometimes we talk about how it's wholesome to choose to be around people that are also on the path. Just like you were saying, maybe I might choose just not to lose to you. But it, then is that the kind of path that you were describing earlier of always needing silence, always needing certain conditions in order for your practice to flourish? So actually, being among people in the workplace who aren't on the path is maybe more. Just letting stuff arise and not requiring a certain kind of concentrated state to be um, mindful. The Buddha had a, uh, a spectrum of ways of dealing with uh, challenging situations. And the first, in his, his first suggestion was avoid those people, places, behaviors that provoke unwholesome states of mind in you. Avoid it. If at all possible, avoid it. Now, he didn't say, go sit in the middle of your most tormenting group of non-friends and see if you can endure it. He didn't say that. No, he said avoid it. But, sometimes you can't avoid it. Sometimes, you just can't avoid being in places, talking with people, being exposed to conditions which has a tendency to provoke defiled or unwholesome states of mind, right? So, when that happens, minimize the amount of time that you spend there. And while you're there, while you're exposed to these conditions, causes and conditions, be sure to be mindful, to stay mindful. As mindful as you can, to watch that you don't get entangled in a defiled reaction to the causes and conditions. So avoid, minimize, and then awareness. There's a poet, can't remember her name. Anyway, she was being interviewed by Terry Gross, NPR. Reading a poem. One line of it really stuck out at Your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. Actually, I don't think she was the first. I know that I hear that a lot. But anyway, we get it. Your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. You don't just go rummaging around the mind without your awareness. You'll find all kinds of things that are going to provoke all kinds of unwholesome, unskillful reactions. Okay, so when you go into your mind, take your mindfulness with you. Really bring your guard, guardian with you, awareness, so that you're really careful. Yeah. I, I want to take a break. I, I feel like I need to stand up and rest my bones. So it, it's about quarter hour. Let's just take a five minute stand up break and get some break. Then I'll come back to you. Uh, we have a half hour. 
you to look at this for a moment and just, if there's something on here that's really provoking your curiosity, just like, what does that mean? What does it mean? I want you to articulate that so that, and, and, and as an, uh, just as an idea, using this as a way of monitoring your practice so that when you see in your life or in your practice that you're anxious and fretful, then you look at the tranquilizing factors. See what you can do there to calm the, to raise the tranquilizing factors. Or if you feel kind of lethargic and kind of logy and kind of out of it in that direction, look at the energizing factors and how to raise the energy of the mind, investigation, curiosity, things like that. So to, I would, I would hope you can understand. It takes some reflection because these aren't easy to understand, but what? I can about the guardianship of mindfulness is it guards the mind from the defilements. It prevents the defilements from entering the mind. It's like the, it's the guards at, uh, in England. You know those guys that never smile? Or just, uh, <laughs> Beef eaters. Huh? Beef eaters. Yeah, but where are they? They're Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace. Yeah, it's like mindfulness is the beefeater guards at your Buckingham mental palace. So it just doesn't let in the defilements. So, so uh, guardianship. Yeah, that's what I would say about it. It really guards the mind from the defilement. Guards them from falling into the defilement. It's not true, like, I mean, when I when I first heard that, it was sort of like, oh, you know, it, sort of, uh, it was almost like a, the, that game where you have the, the moles pop up and you whack them down. Whack a mole. Whack a mole. I, I sort of approached it like whack a mole, where it was like, oh, there's, there's, um, you know, some kind of defilement. Defilement. I'm gonna smash it, and it's not really bad. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yeah, they get here. Can I do that? I can hear. Oh, you can too. Whatever. You're getting old. How's it? Okay. Good enough? Can you hear? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
What's the energy of what? Anger, anger, aversion, impatience, judgment. Not skillful. And yet, we all do it. But that's another one of those. The effort of our practice is not equanimous. You look at equanimity, it says, conveying the mind and the mental states evenly. That's what its characteristic is. So when there's equanimity in the mind, even when you're practicing, you apply, you convey your mind and your mental states, even towards unwholesome states of mind, you apply them evenly. You don't, no back. Don't you say that, that whacking happens though? Uh, whacking happens? <laughs> <laughs> it does, I know. There is the there is the cutting off of wisdom. Wisdom arises, it cuts off delusion, it cuts off proliferating thoughts, da, da, da. but that's not out of aversion. No, that's not out of whack, whack it away. It's out of the clarity of the understanding, wisdom, and the unwillingness to indulge in delusion. You know, it's just. And, you know, it's like when, when you know that something, for example, when you know that something is an unskillful behavior and you see the possibility arise in your mind, well, I could do that, and you're afraid to do it, that fear is not the fear of aversion. That fear is the fear of wisdom when you understand that this leads to suffering and you're afraid to do it. That's a wholesome state of mind. That fear is a wholesome state of mind. But it's wholesome because of the wisdom, not because of the aversion. Yeah. So, so mindfulness in that situation is is seeing the situation clearly. It's seeing this moment and understanding that the response, the wise, compassionate response in this moment is to let it go or to not go there or whatever it is. It just doesn't, you know, if there's wisdom in the mind, it just won't go to unwholesome or unskillful uh, behaviors. Yeah. Um, I was curious, like, smaller people, is there a name uh, that the corporation needs that staff? No. These... Like, two, and then one other question. The volition one. The, the volition? Yeah, okay. So the, the, the four below the seven are common... common topics in meditation practice. And Vedana, Sanya, and Chaitana are three of the five aggregates. And attention, or paying attention, we often use attention a lot. So 
I just added that. These are just four that I thought would be up in the discussion and just wanted to have them available too. Actually, there's 52 mental states, and there are there's approximate cause, manifestation, characteristic, and function of all 52. But they're really hard to see. <laughs> I didn't want I didn't want to give you all of them because they'd be like, well, you know, for old people like us, we can't see too good. Like, but there is there is 52, huh? So, but these are, we were talking about these seven. Send me an email. So these seven are the ones we're talking about, and the other four are often mentioned in meditation practice, so I just wanted to have them available to refer to. Volition. Okay, volition is the, you know, uh, in meditation practice, we're talking about, we talk about the intention, or the about to moment, when you're about to do something, there's this urge and this intention and it is the function of it is to accumulate karma because when you have an intention that is the very place of karma creation that we're creating karma if it's a wholesome intention or if that intention is accompanied by wholesome states of mind like awareness generosity compassion faith whatever then the karma is a wholesome karma to result in pleasant if it is an, a volition that is accompanied by unwholesome state, like aversion, delusion, attachment, pride, wrong view, then we'll act on that and it'll be unwholesome karma. So the, the function is to accumulate karma one way or the other, wholesome or unwholesome karma. The, uh, the state of willing, uh, it's... It's the uh, huh? uh, not not quite aspiration. It's it's the movement of the mind. You're willing the mind to do something. You know, you're willing. It's it's like the free will piece. You know, not to get into that debate, but it's the the free will element of the mind that the mind is willing this movement or this thought or this state of mind. But I, I like to talk about something a little bit different. Instead of a state of willing, I like to talk about at, in practice asking yourself, are you willing to experience this? Not that are you willing to make it happen, but are you open to experiencing this state of mind? Because that's an intention. You know? So Willing. Willingness. Willingness, yeah. Willingness. So you're really looking at what is the, is there any resistance, is there any fear, is there any reluctance? Are you willing to to be here? Are you are you willing to bring your attention to the present moment? And that's that's important. It's a, if you are, it's a wholesome state of mind. Even if what you notice in the present moment is an unwholesome uh, state of mind. Uh, coordination. You know when you when you choose to do something, when you have an intention to do uh, uh, have an intention to bake bread. If you just have the intention, but.
But you don't get the measuring cup, the mixing bowl, the flour, the sugar, the eggs. I don't know what you put eggs in bread, but yeast and other things like that. If you don't coordinate everything that's necessary, it doesn't happen. The intention is like uh, inert. It's like an intention, but no result. So an intention, in this case, it says it manifests as coordinating. So if there is a series of intentions to perform a certain action, then it will coordinate all the associated mental states, all the associated causes and conditions in order to try to make it happen. You know, of course, you can't, you can't control them all. That's why the proximate cause is having these associated mental states to support the willingness to coordinate it all to accumulate this karma. Well, that was kind of a cool. I never quite saw it like that. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I mean? So that's that's how to understand. And, and the feeling, Vedana, everybody knows the Vedana. It's what feels experience. And it comes about through the contact with an object. And the perception, Sanya, this, this perception, Sanya, you know, there's an, you know, Mostly when we when we think of feeling, perception, and volition, we think of nouns. But actually, they're verbs. And when you understand your the functioning of your mind in as verbs, you get a very different picture of what's going on in the mind. Rather than seeing, oh, the mind has this noun of mindfulness or that it has this noun of feeling, or it has this noun of perception. If you see the mind is having this verb of perceiving, this, this verb of awareness, and this verb of feeling, oh, it, it's very, it's, it changes your sense of what's going on in the mind quite a lot, actually. And in... in Opening to and becoming aware of feeling, for example, in the mind. What's important, or what what we what we are encouraged to notice, or what we're pointed out to us, is to notice the pleasant, the unpleasant, or the neutral mental or physical feelings. Right? You know, if that's what they say. Oh, notice the pleasant or unpleasant feelings in the mind. The pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings in the mind or body. But actually, actually, in the mindfulness of mind practice, what we notice instead of the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral noun is the feeling capacity, the verb, of the mind. So we notice, oh, the mind is feeling. Feeling is just doing its job. It's not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. That's, that's going to change. It's going to be there. It's going to happen. But what's important to recognize in the awareness of mind or mindfulness of mind is the very fact of feeling happening. Feeling doing its job of feeling the present moment's experience. So you don't have to look so much or be so concerned about whether the feeling that is being 
recognized is pleasant or unpleasant. What you want to kind of marvel at is the very fact that the mind is just doing its job of feeling. Well, that, that's, that's pretty amazing. I guess it's late in the day. <laughs> Tibetan practitioner. We've got into this discussion about Samadha, and I don't want to touch that caused me to go looking around to find out what Theravada is. Okay, but that is not And I thought that that's where I found that Theravada is sort of believe that you. Give samadhi meditation so that you can acquire this samadhi quiet state, and then go on and practice the possible thing as your mind. So, based on that, then what you said today, I'm not sure what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. I sit down on my I would sit down and start trying to follow my breath. Today, I'm not so sure. Very good question, but I'm not going to answer it in a way that pleases you. <laughs> Where's this should coming from? Where's the should coming from? Forget the should. Now practice. Can you practice? <laughs> What's, where's this most coming from? What kind of attachment is in the mind to say, I want to, I want the most benefit? You see, where, you see the attitude of mind that's yeah. wanting something. Yes. No, my, mindfulness isn't about wanting anything. Like, I want it quicker. I want the best. I want the most effective. Wrong attitude. Wrong attitude. So until we kind of see that and let that go. We can't really practice skillfully, whether you're doing samadhi or vipassana. I told you I wasn't going to satisfy you with my answer. (laughs) (laughs) At the time of the Buddha, most Spiritual seekers were practicing samatha exclusively, and a lot. And they were very adept at deep states of samadhi. So when the Buddha came along to speak to them, he spoke about, you know, he spoke about the benefits of samadhi, but then he spoke about the practice of vipassana or insight. And because they had so much samadhi, they often could hear it very cleanly turn their mind towards Vipassana practice and make extraordinary progress quickly. 
And so the majority of people taught by the Buddha in person accomplished their vipassana having perfected samadhi first. But there were those among the listeners of the Buddha who never practiced samadhi, heard the teachings of vipassana, practiced that, and attained the same realization, same degree of freedom, without having perfected the samadhi uh, jhanas and things like that. So there's confirmation from the Buddha and those at the time of the Buddha that you do not have to practice samadhi or samatha first in order to practice vipassana successfully. That you can just start practicing with vipassana and finish the job with just vipassana. So the tradition that I teach from is a Burmese tradition that starts with vipassana to finish the job. So it's just an accident of circumstance that you're getting these teachings from me. But somebody else will give you something else. If you practice with Dhammaru one, it'll samadhi first. And then, you know, if you practice with some ties, they'll also say samadhi first. Some do vipassana first too, but it's just an accident of circumstance. There's no. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> the difference between. For the most part, if you sit down and observe the breath, you're going to be doing both, because you, mostly we cannot do pure vipassana. And so we'll be doing some combination of samadhi and vipassana together. So you do your practice. For most people, it is not distinguishable. It's only when you get a certain momentum going that you really can make a distinction. I'm going to follow the samatha path to jhanas, or I'm going to follow the vipassana path to insight. But that, that point in where you have to make that choice doesn't come until you're well along the way, actually. So just do your practice being mindful generally mindful and you can stay with the breath uh, but when your attention is called to other noticeable experience like pain thoughts emotions etc just recognize them recognize them then you'll be doing both tranquility samatha and insight the this is a clarification of something you talked about earlier when you said um, what we add on top of bare awareness is conceit, craving, or wrong view. Uh, and I'm wondering about conceit. I'm thinking, okay, there's the first level of I'm great. Then there's the whole thing of attaching to the idea of a self. And then I'm wondering if it goes beyond that to anything else for conceit. Sure. Conceit is the English translation of the word, the Pali word, mana. And mana doesn't only mean conceit in the way we understand it in English, but it means the identification of a self through comparing 
this experience of self with another experience of self. So we could say, oh, I'm a much better meditator now than I was last year. That sense of yourself now is only discernible because in comparison to a previous sense of self. Mm -hmm. Or we say, oh, you're so much smarter than I am. That sense of inferior self, myself is inferior to yourself, is only possible through a comparison of this experience of self with what I imagine is that experience of self. And that we wouldn't ordinarily call conceit in English. But the Buddha identified the sense of self as the conceiving activity, not the fact that it's a better sense of self or a lower sense of self. So he identified superior mana, which is, I'm greater than you, I'm greater than I used to be, I'm greater than whatever, whatever. That's it. He also identified inferior mana, which is like, I'm not as good as I used to be. I'm not as good as you in this along this parameter. The sense of self is just as strong there as when you do the superiority matter. But the Buddha, he was very thorough. He also recognized equality matter. <laughs> I'm the same as you. You're the same as me. No difference. That also reifies a sense of self in relation to other selves. It's the self that's the the solidity of the self which is being pointed to through the comparing mind. So sometimes we say conceit or mana is comparing mind and getting identified with the comparison. You talked a lot about the, the hindrances and the traps along the way. And I wonder if we could towards the end talk a little bit about some of the wholesome states of satisfaction and pleasure that one gets on the path to awakening. Sure. Here's a good list of them. Joy, calm, concentration, and equanimity. Those, those are four of them. And the other ones, clarity, confidence, effortless energy, there's a few others. And these, these states of mind come. But, as I mentioned earlier, when they come, they come because of good practice. But, inevitably, we cling to them with either conceit, like, I'm so much more confident than I used to be, or craving, wow, I really want to keep this kind of tranquility because or clarity or whatever, because it's so good, craving, or wrong view. Now, I've really done it. No, you haven't. It was due to impersonal causes and conditions, nothing to do with you. But if we misunderstand it, if we think about those experience, any of these very satisfactory experiences in terms of conceit, craving, a wrong view, then our practice is uh, stopped. So, yeah, the wholesome, the wholesome qualities of mind, like you know, concentration and equanimity and faith and clarity and understanding, just really piercing understanding. 
when those wholesome states of mind arise, also loving kindness, equanimity, compassion, joy, all those things, when they arise, we want to be aware of them. This is Vipassana practice. Be aware of them just as if they were the same as a hindrance. No, we're not saying they're a hindrance, but we want to be as diligently aware of them because they are just an arising experience being known for a moment. It has arisen due to causes and conditions and not to be taken as me, mine, or who I am. If we do take it as me, mine, or who I am, because he's creating a wrong view, then practice stops. So, what was the question? <laughs> oh, identifying them. When defilements or unwholesome states of mind arise and we're aware of them, it weakens them. When wholesome states of mind arise and we're aware of them, it strengthens them. So that's why we want to make the effort to recognize wholesome states of mind. Because if we're mindful of them, we won't get entangled in them with conceit, craving, and wrong view, but we'll strengthen them so that they support the continued unfolding of insight wisdom. In this case, insight wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. A little more about the what? Indulgence and excitement. Did I say something about indulgence? Okay. Okay, let's talk about indulgence. What is indulgence? Well, when a pleasant mental state arises due to any condition, and we merge our identity with it, we're indulgent. And when we're indulging, we lose the clarity of this knowledge, pleasant being known. When you lose the, that, the clarity of that understanding, and it's just like, this is so good. Indulgence is attachment to pleasant experience, identification with pleasant experience. And it's a defiled state of mind. Far. <laughs> on the other hand it's possible and to, to experience exquisite even ecstatic pleasantness of body and mind without indulgence by being aware of it and the awareness of it is the knowing that this pleasantness is being known this exquisite, ecstatic, and you know, delightful, pleasant physical, pleasant mental experience is being known. And it's still there. Just because you know it doesn't mean that the pleasantness goes away. The pleasantness goes away because that's its very nature in time. But it doesn't go away just because you become aware of it. It'll go away because it's it's the nature of everything to be impermanent. So Knowing that 
Now think about this. Careful. Knowing that it is the nature of everything to be impermanent, why do we hold on? Even to pleasant experience. Hey, why do we do that? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we want to feel good. We, we, we want to indulge in the pleasantness. And, you know, we don't want to experience the inevitable. You know, when pleasant leaves the mind, what's next? Less pleasant. <laughs> Fear of unpleasantness. But un- unpleasantness comes, doesn't it? Unpleasantness comes to the body. Unpleasantness comes to the mind. And no matter what you do to avoid it, to, to, to minimize it, it still comes. We would be much better off, I said this last night, we would be much better off welcoming unpleasantness to say, yep, I knew this would happen. Okay, here I am. I'm ready for it. No problem. Why resist it? It's going to come. If you don't resist it, you don't add to the, to the struggle. You don't add a sense of struggle or burden or you know, fear and avoidance and you know, judgment and all that that comes with inevitable unpleasantness. Well, you just say, I am willing to experience unpleasantness fully for as long as it takes. It doesn't take long. I got a question for you. Yeah. I've seen that you said, I see this often with smaller objects when they arise and you pay attention to them, they disappear. Why did they disappear? What's the cause of the disappearance of that object? Mindfulness doesn't make things disappear. Maybe it's the nature of everything to disappear. I mean, that's really what we see. Now, this is important. This, uh, I'm making a point of this because how you understand your experience makes a difference. If you think, oh, this experience disappeared as soon as I became aware of it, my understanding is, oh, awareness makes things disappear. Wrong understanding. That's how, that's how easy it is to have wrong understanding. That, that understanding leads to a sense of omnipotence. Like, I should be able to control it. As soon as, un, as, soon as some unpleasantness or mental state uh, defilement arises, we become aware of it, it can disappear. I'm aware of it again. It still doesn't disappear. Oh, my, my mindfulness might not be so good. That's not the wrong understanding. Your mindfulness is good. It, doesn't, it isn't mindfulness that makes things disappear. It does have an does like it, you weren't aware of it stuff in the best you know. Is that a Oh hey, time's up. I thought we had a half hour. <laughs> you know, this, uh, 
this discussion has been a lot of fun. I, I really appreciate all your uh, interest and questions and comments and being willing to be a foil for my Dharma games. <laughs> and I want to thank you all for uh, coming. And I hope it was beneficial. If it wasn't, don't blame me. <laughs> We'll pick it up next year. <laughs> we'll look for a date sometime. The topic will be who to blame. Who to, who to blame. Yeah. Or who to praise. Praise and blame. You know, they're inevitable. Don't get identified with either one. So thank you all very much for uh, all your interest and your efforts. Uh, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun. And thank you, Mark, for the invitation. I want to thank all of my host, Des, and husband, and uh, those of you who've been involved in, uh, you know, setting it up and Trish for managing and, and all that. I know it takes a tremendous amount of work to uh, even put on a single event like this and let alone to do it day after day and week after week and month after month. It takes a lot of volunteers. So for those of you who have not yet volunteered or have recovered from your former burnout of having, <laughs> uh, there's lots of room for Dharma Dasas, we say. Dharma slaves. I was just going to mention Stephen Kamala will be doing the summer retreat. Some of you know this already, but we have the flyer out. It has an article, uh, the Grassroots Dharma, the newsletter for the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective is out, both under the shelf and on the table with the pictures of Steve's uh, project that he's working on with a few other people. And Martha is hosting, uh, Martha and Patrice and Doug are hosting the event tonight. You Sure, it's just uh, they would like to hear more information about um, the project and how they are involved in building schools and building um, clinics and other things. Um, we'll be speaking um, at our help tonight. And it's at 7 o'clock. Last night at the 7.30, the session starting at 7 o'clock. Um, everyone is welcome. Also nunneries. Schools mostly, some clinics, and nunneries because nunneries end up being the orphanages for girls uh, in Burma. So we built a few nunneries and are continuing to support other nunneries. And you also have a chance to support Steve and his Dharma projects and the center and the donation bowl outside. You can check the fee if you have any questions about that. But uh, most of you know Steve earns his livelihood teaching, and uh, we really want to make him comfortable so that he continues to teach in the years ahead as he ages. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Mark. Uh, 62. 62. So I was just reading about how a lot of the first generation of Western teachers are getting older now. So uh, unlike the rest of you, <laughs> older faster. <laughs> One day at a time. <laughs> but this is our opportunity to support Steve and the projects he's involved in. So you would make sense in your lives. And uh, a lot of other programs, the new summer flyer is out. You can take a look at that. Let us know if you have any questions. It's important you take all your stuff home. People often leave their lunch stuff um, after program class fees, so check, make sure. Also, we could use uh, a couple people to get ready for tomorrow morning's program. 
So uh, Scott, are you willing to say you can check with Scott over here if you'd like to help with that? And a couple people, I think Julie and maybe one or two other people to help clean up in the kitchen. That would be great. Any other? Oh, and finally, there's a bulk mailing party right now in the community room if you want to stay for 10 minutes or half an hour or 45 minutes to put some labels on and fold the newsletters uh, so Betsy can do the bulk mailing early next week. That would be great. I just want to mention also, uh, yes, I live on Donna. I appreciate all the support that many of you have offered over many years to keep to keep the old Donna Bowl ball rolling along. And for those of you who are new to the practice of Donna or my teachings, uh, thank you very much for your for your support. When I and my wife receive financial gifts from students in gratitude for their hearing and practicing the Dharma. We receive them as uh, a responsibility. We consider it your investment in the Dharma Sangha in the West. And we don't really consider it ours to kind of like stash away for some retirement because nobody in the Dharma ever retires. But rather, we hold the funds as uh, kind of stewards or trustees, really, uh, and use the funds to support worthwhile Dharma activities in the West, uh, supporting teachers, our teachers, supporting uh, students, training teachers, uh, scholarship funds, translating books, making other books available freely to students, and just doing and then creating the sanctuary on Maui. So we use the funds in a variety of ways to support the Dhamma in the West. Whatever support you offer to me for this teaching here, none of that goes to the Burma Schools Project. That's an entirely separate thing. I'm not, I'm not here trying to raise funds. I don't do appeals for the Burma Schools Project. Some people hear about it and want to support, and that's what this evening is, uh, a kind of a separate fundraising thing for that. But the funds that, or whatever support you offer today here, it doesn't go out of the country. It stays in to support the Dharma and the Sangha in the West, just, just to make that clear, because there's plenty of work to be done in the West in here. So it's just some of, some of the students who have a connection with Burma like to or want to support that, and that's fine. So thank, thank you. And, and uh, just, just to uh, kind of acknowledge the obvious, you people in Minneapolis are extremely fortunate to have this place and this community and Mark and Wynn and the others that, that make this possible. There are a few places like this in the States that have a good city center and active and one of Seattle and Boston and, and other places. But this is a very well run and a very comprehensive and uh, you're really, really, really very, very fortunate uh, to have it so accessible and so uh, manageable and so transparent and clean uh, in its offering of the Dharma. So, Mark, you've done a fantastic job and uh, I really appreciate the quality of the, the Dharma understanding that uh, members of this Sangha come to retreat with and that is on display here uh, today. It really is a, 
testament to the integrity with which you do your own practice and offer the teachings here. Thanks for coming. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.